Welcome to Real Estate Hackers, where you'll hear how real estate investors grew something from nothing. Property management is going to become more technical. Our entire business today is based off of a hack. What if you could put $1,000 into an apartment building project on your phone? With YouTube, with podcasts, you can catch up very quickly to a seasoned investor. Now here's your real estate hacker host, Chad Gallagher. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. Welcome to Real Estate Hackers, where you'll hear how real estate investors grew something from nothing. Property management is going to become more technical. Our entire business today is based off of a hack. What if you could put $1,000 into an apartment building project on your phone? With YouTube, with podcasts, you can catch up very quickly to a seasoned investor. Now here's your real estate hacker host, Chad Gallagher. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. This show is brought to you by Red Rabbit Insurance. As a real estate investor, I love working with companies and people who truly understand investing. If you're a real estate investor, I highly suggest talking to Ryan at Red Rabbit Insurance. Red Rabbit specializes in working with investors of all sizes, both for their personal residence, auto, and investment properties. Red Rabbit recently saved one of our investors $5,000 a year by switching to the exact same coverage. That's a down payment on a new rental. I personally saved 15% by switching to Red Rabbit, which is pretty significant. And Red Rabbit Insurance makes it super easy to get a quote. All you need is the address, your full name, and your date of birth. No annoying questionnaires to fill out and Red Rabbit gets you a quote in less than a day. Email ryan at redrabbitinsurance.com or go to the website redrabbitinsurance.com or call 1-800-560-3015. That's redrabbitinsurance.com. Call today to save some money and get better insurance rates for your investments. What is up, guys? I'm pumped. We're coming uh, from the Trenton Hive today, the Real Estate Hackers podcast. Andrew Shenna in the house. What's up? Did I say your name right? You did. All right. Thanks. <laughs> uh, Andrew's awesome. Um, Capital Equity Partners is where he comes from, from the beautiful city of Boston. It is. Maybe uh, not in the winter, but. I uh, So I lived in Coolidge Corner for a little bit. Oh, nice. And, you just did uh, a project over there. I loved it. Uh, my wife hates the cold, or mm -hmm. I'd move back there. Um, <laughs> I uh, Seriously. Uh, so, uh, uh, but I am pumped to hear uh you guys listen to Andrew and what he's up to. Um, we'll kind of get right into it. So why don't we just, uh, I mean, so top line, um, you're doing a lot of private equity, um, a lot of redevelopment. But what I want to do is actually kind of start at the beginning. Um, so you started out working for ESPN. Do I, I did. have that right? I did. Which is like the perfect segue to real estate, right? Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't put sports and real estate together? Um I went to school, uh, uh, Quinnipiac University. It was college when I went, yep. dating myself. Um, graduated in 99 and with a broadcast journalism degree, uh, mass communications. And um, that was my goal. That's what I wanted. And so the, uh, so the dream was not a uh, $100 million private equity no, real estate redevelopment no, company. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. It was, um, you know, being around sports. I mean, obviously growing up and being active in football and track and, and um, being supported through that with my family. It was just sports always just, I loved it. And I wasn't the greatest athlete. Um, I sure tried. I loved hell too. <laughs> but um, at the end of the day, I, I loved being around sports and I loved 
television, and I got into that in an early age, um, understanding studio work, almost like what we're in now. Yeah. And that's what I went to school for. So um, I originally wanted to be on on camera. So I went to when I went to Quinnipiac. I, that was some of the things I was practicing and learning about. But I went, when I went to ESPN, it was more of the the kind of track of being a producer and things like that. So twenty two year old kid, um, and I loved it. I mean, who wouldn't want to watch sports? You know, for their job and cut highlights. And, and this awesome. is when Sports Center was Sports Center. You yeah. know, with Stu Scott and Dan Patrick and all those guys, Chris Berman. It was so it was awesome, and uh, I made some great relationships there. But what I noticed was the grind. And it, like, after close to a year, it was, it was six at night to 2 a.m., Wednesday through Sunday. Yeah. And as a 22-year-old, you know, I was like, you start looking at everybody that's around there. You're noticing the grind being like, I really have no life. Yeah. And, you know, you could try and get out early at some point and go out to some of the local areas in Hartford or West Hartford. And that scene wasn't really that great. No. <laughs> Central Connecticut. Um, but it was... Um, it was eye-opening to me because, you know, I was looking at guys twice my age, pretty much my age now, I'm 42, and it was, you know, I'm looking at guys that are working the same shifts I am, and they got young families, and that was part of it, being like, well, you start thinking, like, when are sports, yeah. nights and weekends, yeah, and, and holidays, and it's like, yeah, that's kind of what I'm working, so this will be the rest of my life, so that started kind of my, my pivot, if you will, Those, that was the beginning process, and this is in 2001-ish, 2002, and I read the, the famous purple book yeah. uh, when I was there, and it spoke to me. Mr. Kiy Mr. Mr. Kiyosaki. That's right. He's a good man. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so, you, so you said, look, I got to get out of this kind of day-to-day. -day. Yep. I love sports. I'm cutting highlights. I'm working with some of my idols, but I got to think about how to make life easier. Yeah. Yes. Well, not easier. Um, it, it was smarter, more. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. But it, to me, it was more like when I read that book, it, it spoke to me. Like my my life was very much like that. Um, I didn't get a financial education really growing up. I got a lot of love and support and humor, right. um, self-deprecation humor, especially, <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, when that book spoke to me, I just, and I knew I didn't have a financial education, but it was something that I really wanted. So I left there, bounced around to a couple different things, but ended up in the mortgage business. And I spent 10 years there really understanding that was the beginning of my financial education, which was, you know, understanding the real world assets, income, um, credit, liabilities in uh, investing. Uh, and so being able to sit down with people uh, at their kitchen tables and understand what's your goal? You know, what are you trying to do with your mortgage? Like, what do you have going on around you? And you could see across all spectrums, mm -hmm. um, people who were really great and smart with their money and people who were just continue doing cash out refinances to pay off their debts. So yep. that was my beginning of understanding investing. And that just eventually bled into uh, getting my real estate license and then got into the development game in 2011. And by 2017, we were you know, pivoting ourselves into multifamily. Okay. So I want to, I want to um, talk about this a little bit. So um, first off, super interesting journey. Um, you spend basically six years uh, developing basically new construction, residential homes, condos, yeah. both, um, both full gut renovations. You know, we don't really like the partial stuff, um, but they would be full guts, take everything down to the studs in a shell or just ground up construction. Mainly, I mean, we did a couple of single families and they were okay. Um, but to us where we made our investors a lot happier was in the multifamily space. Okay. So, and Boston as a city, similar to Philly, um, is very much um, a lot of just two, three, four unit buildings. Uh, a lot of those 
Uh, and, and that's, you know, our office is in South Boston and that's primarily what the housing stock is. Um, and so that's, we just did what was natural and around to us. My business partner, John, he, he grew up there. So it was Southie in Southie. Yep. So, um, so, uh, so basically, um, when investors, a couple of things I want to get on, but let's, yeah. let's start yeah, yeah. with this. So when investors invest into the, um, syndication, are they investing into your private equity fund overall? Or is it project by project? Yeah. So we've never we've never started a fund. Okay. So we've always syndicated individual deals. Okay. Um, so either a flip or a, uh, you know, if you're doing a multifamily home or or a new construction, hey, we're going to do fifty new houses or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I mean, fifty. I mean, what limited us in the beginning of of really our development career was the fact that you know, when we were raising money, we started out with friends and family and and kind of grew from there. We were syndicating before we even knew. It really what syndication was. Um, and that, that's really part of our, our journey. And that's really what I focused on. Um, because you know, I I, I grew up, my dad was an electrician, so I grew up in trades. Um, so being in construction projects was a natural, it's like in my blood. I love it. Um, but understanding the capital side of it and, and how to get other people to, to view your opportunity as a great investment. And, and so it started out in that circle. Um, so we just, we've always gone one at a time and, you know, at the, at, at, we do about three or four projects generally at once, but the capital demands are so much that, you know, it maxed out, it was maxing out kind of really our stable of investors. You know, we had a couple of million dollars of people at, you know, from 50 to a hundred thousand, maybe up to four or five, 500,000 that were willing to invest with us. But, um, you know, you don't want to necessarily put that all into one deal as debt. So we were using them as, you know, parsing it out really as equity into just a number of different deals. Um, so that's, that's how, that's why we've only really done, and we didn't want to overextend ourselves. That's why we've really only ever done two to four projects at once. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all we could really handle with, right, the, right, with right. the construction side. It's a lot. Okay. And then, so, um, so you're basically doing mostly kind of residential where people are eventually buying it. And then you got into uh, multifamily in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Now, now, talk me through the uh, why you made that shift from, you know, development or residential into basically the rental world. So, so when we and, and when we develop a, a residential multifamily, it's usually between it's on average it's usually three units, but two to four units, um, and we'd sell them all off as condos. That's what the market demands. Um, so that's what we've always done. Um, we have sold a couple of buildings off as cash flow to 1031 exchange investors, but um, about 2017, um, you know, everyone, you know, you always keep listening to, you listen to the, the sentiment in the market and a lot of people are like, this is the top, this is the top, we can't go any further, but yet we kept inching, kept inching and kept pushing those, those top end line items or the top end sales numbers. And, you know, when you're getting double digit growth year after year after year for a certain number of years, you just start getting a little nervous. And, and so by 2017, I kind of recognized this fact. So in the, in the development space, when you're selling things off and you have investor capital invested with you, you need to liquidate the asset in order to provide the return that you perform it out for them. And if you can't sell that asset, then you're in trouble, you know, and, and it's ultimately, if you get into another scenario where there is a downturn and the market gets soft, 
you're not going to sell it. Or if you're going to sell it, you're going to take a haircut, a major haircut. Yeah, I understand. And your investors aren't going to be happy. And at the right. end of the day, our investors are the lifeblood of our business. Yeah. So when we look at a at an investment, we don't look at it for what we can make out of it. We look at it as what can we provide to our investors. Yeah. Um, and if they win, we win. And and, and let me pause you here. Yeah. 2017, was the market turning then in no, Boston? No, no. I mean, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. So I just looked at, I'm, you know, I always take a three to five year kind of horizon looking sure, at it because sure. some of these projects literally take three years to get done, especially with the city of Boston. Um, you know, going through that process. So to, to buy something and get it to the finished product, you know, sometimes takes 30 months. So in 2017, I'm looking out to 2020 yeah. and I'm already saying to myself, okay, well, eventually sooner or later the music's going to stop and when the music stops i want to have a seat and and for my investor partners i want to make sure that that they're taken care of so knowing that if we get into a situation where we can't liquidate an asset okay that's that's troublesome and you can figure yourself we wouldn't be the first person to ever go through that right however i wanted to make sure that we were in a position where it doesn't matter if there's a downturn or if the economy gets soft a little bit you want to position yourself into a position of cash flow so that's when I started going out, educating myself and, and really understanding the multifamily, really the commercial asset um, underwriting process. And um, it took us uh, about a year and a half before we really found our first opportunity. And we bought 28 units out uh, just outside of Louisville, Kentucky, Sellersburg, Indiana. And uh, I mean, it was a process. And it's been a learning experience and it's been great. And since then, we've... And was uh, that your first deal outside the outside of Boston of, oh, yeah. metro area? Yep, absolutely. So not only... Vulturing, not vulturing, but not even um, evolving into uh, multifamily, but also evolving into multifamily in a different time zone, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> different part of the country completely. Yeah. And, you yeah, know, it was it was a lot. They, they do not have a Boston accent in Louisville, Kentucky. They do not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although they can see me coming from a mile away. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, and it, I mean, it's been, we've had it for about a year now and it's going great. Um, everything is, and, and that's, I didn't want to be that guy that, that got into the multifamily space and was just trying to like within my first year, trying to put all these, you know, huge deals together and things like that. It's like, no, I, to me, it's always been a step-by-step approach yeah. and, and like, look, swallow this first, see if you can, you know, digest it, understand it, work it. And then next, you know, now what you can, now can you scale up a little bit? So this, move the, further this 20 further? unit deal in Louisville, um, let's kind of on 28. Don't come short. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, so 28. So, are you kind of one by one, uh, maybe just talk to your audience through, are you, yeah. are you one by one turning units and then re-renting them out? Or so are you doing everything at the same time? No, so, how are you? so again, you know, depending on, you know, just like anything, it depends on the asset. What's yeah. your strategy with it? Yeah. So on this one, it was actually, a, it's a B-class asset built in 03. Okay. Um, it was in excellent physical condition. Actually, the, they had a hailstorm that ruined all the roofs in 14. So you know, this is 2018, we bought it. So... Um, so when buying an O3 asset with pretty much brand new roofs, it was only five years old at that point, uh, four years old. And it was really an operational play. So the physical, I mean, the, the units were great. Um, they really were very well taken care of. Uh, it was, uh, an owner managed property. Uh, it was a great story, you know, cause every property has got the story. Uh, the seller was a single family home developer in that Southern Indiana, Louisville area. And they were self-managing. They just wanted out. They wanted to retire. So it was a great, it was an off-market opportunity brought to us through Marcus and Millichap, uh, contact out of, uh, a relationship out of Indianapolis. And so he's like, you know, why don't you, why don't you take a look at this one? So I said, okay, I'll look at it. And the numbers worked. Like, believe it or not, we've, 
we've been looking for over a year and, you know, to find something that actually worked and this worked. So it would, but so to us, it was an operational play. They were uh, just about 14% under market on their rents and they didn't charge any utility rubs, pillbacks or anything like that. Um, but you didn't need to actually do a lot of physical stuff you really grew up doing. Exactly. <laughs> so it was, but it was, so it was a nice change. So yeah. it was like, Hey, this one's, I mean, as far as I, I know the construction side of things. So it was, it was, I was like, this is, this is great. This is easy. So not having to actually do the whole physical lift and, and trust contractors that you can't see on a daily basis or go by their job site or have one of your business partners on site. Um, was would you, kind of nice. Would Just, you have done a heavy redevelopment? Uh, I don't know if I would have in my first. I mean, that being said, I, I say that, but you know, if the, if the numbers worked, I would have went for it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm that kind of guy yeah. that which is like, look, I, if I, if I believe in it, I'll take action. Okay. Um, I'm not just going to not do something because I'm nervous. Right, but it. obviously it's a little easier taking on a, a project outside your area. That is, uh, you know, a lighter lift. Yes. Yeah. A thousand percent. So, uh, so we, you know, we, we noticed that there was probably, you know, 18% right off the bat of, uh, operational efficiencies that we could increase, um, NOI by. So, so you're about a year in, are you seeing mm -hmm. those lifts like you had hoped for? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, I'm not without pushback, of course, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's standard yeah. operating procedure. Um, are the, so you're raising rents, mm -hmm. uh, you're starting to move towards rubs or are you actually doing submetering? Yeah, no. So we didn't submeter. We just used the formula okay. and, uh, and put that in place. And like, so as the contracts would roll over, uh, or if they were, uh, tenant at wills, we would just. Are you considering right submetering or. Okay. No, we'll just. We'll just use the formula. We'll monitor it on a on an annual basis. Gotcha. See see you know, what the costs are. Up and and then so is the play to like refinance to push money back to investors or nope. just hold on this particular asset and the strategy on this one. Um, we looked at it as just a five year hold, uh, and you know if we can return ninety to one hundred percent of our investors uh, or as a return back to our investors in that duration, just from a simple operational play, it was a great foot in, you know toe in the water for us. Um, and, and then sell after five, uh, sell after five. Okay. Yeah. Um, is that, is that how with investors, do you normally have a kind of time horizon that you say? Hey, yeah. So in, in the, in all the SEC, uh, all the documents, right. All the, all the legal documents that you put together uh, when you're offering securities, um, you know, you got to pretty much establish what your, what your business plan is going to be. Yep. Um, so ours was like, look, we're going to hold this. We originally wanted to hold it for seven to 10. Um, but we were finding that it was, not a lot of investors wanted to sit in an asset for seven to 10 years. People wanted that three to five year turn. So we said, okay, well, we can still get a great return if we do that. So we, we, we adjusted to what the market was telling us. So, um, so once we, once we adjusted that, we, we fulfilled the, the capital raise and, um, it was, you know, for, for us, we say we'll evaluate in three to five years. So, and all the investors understand that. So if in five years we can, we'll take a temperature of everybody like, Hey, this is where we see the market and these are where our numbers are. We, if we can do a cash out refinance and people want to stay in and get a, a large portion of their capital back. Yeah. I got no problem with that. Right, right. Um, but you know, if, if people want their capital out and everyone's like, yep, let's get out of this, then yeah, we'll just put it on the market and we'll sell it. So it, it's, it's flexible. You have to be flexible. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, do you find now, Having started in the kind of, you know, residential condo space and moving into rentals, one thing I think is that there's a lot more options in the rental space. You can sell, you can rent, you can refi. You have some more tools 
So as the market changes, you can do different things. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the kind of the space you started, kind of, I mean, you got to sell. You got to sell. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you can, I mean, we always, we always pro forma out. If something can't sell, what can we rent it for? And can we break even? But when you do that, the, you know, the pro forma, the estimated returns that you're, you're telling plummet. to someone, yeah, they right. plummet. So it's yeah. like, this isn't what I invested into. So it's like, this isn't what I want. Like, right. I understand that, but I can't sell it. But, right. but we always, if that, if that scenario ever came up, like we always have that in our scenarios and say, look, you know, it'll break even. Yeah. But if it's breaking even and we can't sell, then something's really going on and it's not good. Um, and we just got to be able to ride it out. and We can do that. So, so as you look towards the next couple of years, are, are you making a play towards this? Is this the play? Go after multifamily, go Both. after rentals. So, yeah, I, I would say for, for um, I mean, we're development. Like I said, we were talking before. I mean, development's like in my blood and it's, I love it. And if we can build for cash flow, and, and our biggest challenge has been the investor stable that we have hasn't wanted to, you know, they want, they want to get in and out, in and out. So we haven't really um, stretched the, the base yet to really want to get into development and hold. Um, and the tough part is in the market that we're in, it's, it's very tight, you know. So you, to build a brand new building in Boston, um, sizable, especially, you know, anything from 20 to 140 units, you know, that's some of the stuff that we're really kind of starting to look at. Um, you know, your investors have to be okay with like a, a levered 5%, 6% return. And I don't, we don't, a lot of the investors that we have are expecting, you know, the eight prefs that we've been offering plus a case of equity. So to be able to do both of those and for, you know, us to be able to operate it on, on a profitable level, it just, the numbers hadn't been adding up. So until we actually, you know, we've been, we actually have a couple of relationships we've been working with of late as we've been looking at larger stuff that are, that want that because it becomes more of not a legacy asset, but it's an A-class asset that you're building in a, in a top 10 market in the country. You know, you don't, you're not just going to turn around and pick up, Oh, well, look, here's, here's an eight cap. Like it just, it doesn't happen. Right. Um, so, so, so let me just pause you really quick. Yeah, so are you seeing investors be willing to take, uh, five, six, seven percent return for that A class asset in Boston. Or are you saying you're still not seeing that? That no, no, no. We yes, I would say that is becoming more prevalent. Okay. So as we've opened our eyes more to the multifamily space, where you know outside of our market, you know we were shooting for seven and eight percent prefs um, with a split that can return, let's say ninety, hundred percent capital return. On five years. Our, yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and. And that's what we were just, that's what we produced. And or that's what we were always thought we would have to produce. So now that we're, you know, we're really starting to analyze our own backyard instead of looking at, you know, cause we do look at emerging markets because um, that's where a lot of capital wants to grow, but there is capital out there that would rather have the protection and, and the safety of a market like mm-hmm. Boston. So brand new assets market like Boston, that's not going anywhere. It's incredibly diverse. Um, they're okay with taking less. Do you find um, there's a certain kind of personality or maybe um, geographic location of the investor that is more op- is more interested in like because there, there are two different types of investors, right? One is a lot more than two. In this case, we're, we're you're kind of saying there's there's the guy who says, "Look, I just <laughs> want a high return." Yeah, and then there's this other investor who's saying. I want actually more like stability and I want to be in a market I understand. Mm-hmm. 
and I've probably been to personally, right. and I understand Boston, I know Boston, and I'll take a 6% return. Maybe talk me through the, the differences of those two types of investors yeah. and how they... I think it, I think it really depends on, uh, I mean, first it comes down to risk tolerance, right? So um, some investors would prefer, and, and it depends on where they are in their investment cycle, right? And where they are in their life, where somebody that is um, maybe wants or at least has a portion of their portfolio or is at a certain age where they want more aggressive growth and they're looking for those you know, 8% prefs and, and, you know, high teens, IRR, 20% um, annualized stuff. Um, but then you may have somebody that has maybe more capital and they want to protect it more and they want to protect yeah, it it's more. A, it's a risk. Exactly. Right? Uh, I have to imagine there's also a, a bit of an age thing, right? Is, is Absolutely. That, I mean, maybe they, maybe they kind of go together, right? But They do, but uh, you're 1,000% you're correct. Right. The, uh, the older investor who's 55 years old, you know, once retire in 10 years, you know, he's like, look, I just want security. Get me 6% returns yep. in a market I understand. Yep. That's great. Absolutely. And a lot of the, yeah, because they're, they're more in a, they, they still want growth, but they're in a defensive position. Like they do want they really want to protect their capital. Um, so yes, the answer to that's yes. And truth be told, a majority of like, if, when you're talking individual investors, those older investors, um, they generally want more conservative amounts. And generally speaking, they, they're the ones who have a majority of the capital. Well, right. you know, because they're yeah. at that stage in their life where they've right. gone through and they, they may be in their late fifties, early sixties and they're like, there's bigger IRA accounts that you're digging into. thousand percent. thousand yeah. percent. So, so Interesting. yeah. Um, talk me through, uh, so you've done some, it sounds like you've done some redevelopment of rentals, yep. not, not so much the larger multifamily, but let's just say like a, like a two, three, four unit yep. in Boston. Yep. And then you've also redeveloped that into condos. Talk me through the difference between the two. Uh. So to us as, as developers and the operators of the development company, um, it's, it's never, I mean, if you're going to go for a high end product and you're going to sell, it really depends on to us, it boils down to size of an asset. Like you know, what, what's your floor plan looking like? Um, and are you going in as knowing you're going to sell these as condos or are you going to go in knowing that you're going to sell these as rentals? Or, or even try and hold it as rentals. Um, to us, it's, you know, the difference between the two will, will depend, will really dictate your finishes uh, and, and the quality of items that you generally put into an asset. I mean, we've got a, we've got a, a two family that we just finished developing um, between both units. Um, it's probably a three to $3.2 million building. Um, so individual, and those are individual condos, but they're all 48 inch Thermidors, hoods, sort of, you know, the ranges and the, the wa double waterfall granite in the kitchen. I mean, you're, you're spending a lot more money on something like that than you would if you were just building a two family rental building where you're doing just real basic, you know, 10 foot kitchens and, and you put, you throw some granite in it just to make it a little bit higher end. Cause that's what people expect. And depending on where you are, yeah, you have, Boston, you, by the way, yeah, exactly. where, where I'm, where, where we do most of our rentals, they're very little granite. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's just like outside of Louisville. No, it's black appliances and, and right. Formica and, right. um, okay. So, so you're going yeah. in you're basically, it, it's, it's lower end finishes. Um, what else kind of changes to the process between the two? It, I mean, cause at the end of the day, it, the di most difficult part, um, if you're just going to do a, a residential, um, rental building, you know, the land cost doesn't change on your way in. Like the seller doesn't care what you're going to do with the place. So when, when, 
that's going to end up dictating how you need to to perform and, and run the building. So, um, you know, we'll model out you know, what does this look like as condos and what does it look like as rentals? Like, you know, what do we think our investors want? Um, so that's generally, that's why we always kind of end up at condos because it's just got a better bang for the buck. Um, that being said, it's, you know, it is still a great rental market, but at some point those rents, I mean, because the rents are I get it. Everyone, everyone rents up to like that 30, 35% um, income number. And yes, Boston is a high income kind of town, but to pay $3,500 for a two bedroom apartment just blows my mind. It's great. <laughs> like, Oh my God. Um, but when you're doing that, that's where it's tough. Like, you know, cause we all, we do, we come up with that. Even when we're doing, if we're doing more of a middle market kind of condo, not a high end, like 1900 square foot condo, that's a, you know, $1.5 million. Um, if you're just doing a, a six, $700,000 condo, where do you start cutting those costs? Like, you know, you're going to, you got to use, still use quality cabinetry and, and you're using quartz and you're going with a, a mid grade to lower, higher end appliance package. And, and this is what the, this is what the buyers demand in that market. So otherwise you're not, yeah, you're not going to get away with it. So or you, your, your sales numbers will suffer. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking my, I, I've just finally internalized the $3,500 rent <laughs> For a two-bedroom apartment, I, I, I was kind of like knocked unconscious for a second. Yeah. I finally just, I, all the way through, $3,500 yeah. rent for a two. I mean, I, it, many at least of our- it has parking. <laughs> it does have parking. But there are some out there that, I mean, you, there, I mean, depending, now if you're in, and that's just in a standard kind of three-family, two-family, you can go into a professional building that may have like 100 plus units. They're, they're sprinkled around. I mean, around. is there a butler too or you're not? No. <laughs> it's actually a walk up. There's no <laughs> elevator. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are just staggering numbers, first of all, for folks who, you know, sit in uh, smaller communities yeah. that are not in a, a top five city. A $3,500 rent numbers are hard to imagine. I think it's really interesting how you hit on that number of 30% um, rents uh, of, of income, which is so interesting and, and kind of helps to inter- internalize why that might be higher rents in a place like Boston where you have incomes of a hundred, 200, 300 K, um, you know, and it really, honestly, in this, the understanding of it for me goes back to my mortgage days, right? I spent 10 years doing, doing loans and, you know, Fannie Mae underwriting, when you're going to apply for a mortgage, they want to see what your front end and back end ratios are. It's right now it's 32%. It's 30 to 32% in the front end. And I think they, they used to go up to 50 and that's why we, everyone got in trouble. Um, but it looks like 30%, yeah. they want to see a 30% ratio of mortgage to income. Correct. Yeah. yeah gross income. Yeah. Um, and not just, um, it, it front end, not just the mortgage, but mortgage, uh, principal interest taxes insurance. Yeah. Right. So the same principle applies across, um, rental. And so I'm looking, you know, in, we as landlords do the same thing and we're looking at the market and seeing what's happening in the market, but we're also looking at the, the quality of tenants that are coming in and what their incomes are. So if, if the general income and especially in a, in a market where in, in Boston, where it's a you know, relatively young city, especially South Boston, um, you get a lot, uh, you get more, you get people who just are living together, but they're still paying, you know, 1200 bucks each uh, for a bedroom. Um, and, but that $1,200 according to their, you know, whatever they're making. Works. Exactly. So. Right. They're making 60 K each. Yeah. Exactly. So the numbers actually don't. The numbers, the numbers just pan out and they're like, okay, that's not that bad. So, you know, depending on what they really want to get into, 
So now if you, you know, again, this just, just that's why the number keeps creeping up and you start seeing better paying jobs. And, you know, we're only a mile from the seaport district and a mile from the financial district in South Boston. Um, and that's where, I mean, those are where all the high paying jobs are in bio, uh, biotech and uh, a lot of, uh, down there, PricewaterhouseCoopers and Fidelity is right down there. So there's a state streets right down there. So it's, there's, there's a lot of high paying jobs that are there and everybody wants to live very close to work. Right. That, that's just it. One thing I, I saw in the last downturn was places like Boston, New York were hit first and then smaller communities kind of got hit by the downturn next. Um, did, are you seeing, I, I know some of our listeners who maybe not don't live in a place like New York or Boston are mm-hmm. probably sitting here dying to know is, do you think Boston's at the top and are you starting to see the market turn or are time still good and things are still no things are because st- you're almost the canary in the coal mine. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, here's the thing: uh, uh, what happened to Boston specifically in the last downturn, right? And we studied this. Um, Boston as a whole, um, even South Boston where we are, it didn't decline. Massachusetts as a whole went down 15 percent uh, in the in the last downturn, but that's taking in every community in the state of Massachusetts. Um, so South Boston plateaued regarding prices and volume stock, like really dropped. Um, but by 2010, 2011, you started to see that start to tick up. And once, once activity started ticking up uh, and the buyers came back, that's when you started to see prices elevate again. Um, the, the, the difficulty is, is that, you know, will you, if, if the market gets soft, if we see the, uh, the economy as a whole gets soft, Boston is incredibly resilient. You know, and this is what we look at when we look at multifamily markets. We wanna know who are the employers in town. How many jobs are there? Like how diverse is the economy where one sector gets hit? Can the economy still, you know, be great? Because who are your tenants? Who are they working for, right? So Boston having so many different um, industries and that's what makes Boston incredibly resilient. Um, You know, where current incomes are, that's kind of right where everything is, uh, or the majority of it, a lot of incomes, um, especially in these these, uh, communities. Obviously every community is a little bit different in town, but, if the income levels are, are staying where they are, you're not going to see that much of a price drop, um, especially on the rental. I mean, if, if things start dropping and tenants start leaving left and right, then yeah, people will have to adjust. But I don't think you're going to see 10% swings. I just don't. Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things I want to unravel that you said. Yeah. One was, I love this idea. I hear a lot of people will talk about downturns, like being this just uh, as if the whole world would just drop 10% every community across the board, right? right. right. Um, you're definitely throwing kind of water on that, which I, I agree with. I think sometimes people simplify things way too much. Mm-hmm. The reality is, you know, uh, different, you know, Detroit was obviously hit a lot harder than Boston was, right? right? To your point. Yep. Um, and so you can't just look at overall macro numbers. You got to go community by community. I think that's really interesting. Um, and then number two, what I'm hearing from you is basically, you know, look, uh, the market's still strong. In it is. It is. And, and, Absolutely. Uh, They've added 400,000 jobs in the past, it was like six or eight years. I mean, they've been on a tear and it's the exact reason why traffic's horrendous and it's, it takes forever to get everywhere now. And um, I mean, that those are just totally different issues, but I mean, that's, that's the side part of yeah. all of it. So. So living in a tech kind of centric city like mm-hmm. Boston how does that impact your thinking of maybe how you interact with investors over the next three, five years? I mean, I personally see um, 
it's get, it's twofold. Like I think being able to connect to people or investors um, that have an interest in investing in real estate um, is ha- and this is kind of already established through all the social media, the channels, um, your LinkedIn's, your Facebooks. Um, I mean, you, so you say it's established. I would say it's not established. Okay. I, I think. I mean, most of our listeners have probably never heard of you before. No, definitely. Right. Not. Yeah. And so, uh, and I'm not. Not saying that's not well, thanks you. a lot. Awesome. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. But I'm saying is, I actually think we're in the early, early. It feels like we're late stage. Social media has had a 10, 20 year ride, but I think we're still in the early stage of people like yourself using social media to broadcast out to larger people to get um, investors to connect with you yes. that you've never met personally. I a thousand percent agree. Um, and I think as technology as it evolves. Um, I think it, it, it'll be twofold to be able to, you know, obviously come on a podcast like yours and, and introduce, excuse me, and introduce myself kind of, let's say to the world through, through your channel, which yeah. is, I'm incredibly grateful for, um, you know, to be able for, for me to actually be, have a chance that maybe have one of your listeners contact me and I can help educate them on what we do, whether they invest with me or they don't, that's fine. I've, I've, I've given, I've given back to the world and I'm, I'm okay with that. If they do invest with me, great. If they don't, they invest with someone else. Great. As long as they're doing what they need to do. But yeah. I, I think the outreach um, will continue to evolve, but I also think that the, the ability to, uh, the ability to, to promote opportunities in real estate is going to get greater. Um, you know, we've, I mean, talk about just in the early innings of, of crowdfunding. Um, I think that is what's going to start you know, as people get a little bit more experience under it, my opinion, the SEC eventually will kind of maybe, you know, let down its guard a little bit. You haven't it. used a crowdfunding site no. to bring in money, but, but would you in the next three, five years? Um, yeah, I would. If I had, if I had an opportunity, absolutely. But I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, the old way of, of this business, or the old way, eight years, right? right. Um, is, is networking with individuals sure. and, and growing your yeah. network. Shaking hands one-on-one. That's it. Right. Because at the end of the day, all, I mean, all business, a majority of businesses, especially in high trust sales, really, which is what you're doing when you're investing, people want that contact. They want to know that they can, can have contact with you. Um, it's not like wall street where everything is just, you don't even need a financial advisor anymore. You can just do it all yourself. Um, I still think people want that touch. Um, and at least having a relationship, even if it's over the phone, cause you're in a completely different state, but that's our world today. Um, I think being able to, um, know, promote opportunities on those you, types I mean, of platforms. Like when I invest I would in Apple stock, I don't have a personal relationship with, you know, the C leadership team of Apple. Right. And so I, where I see the world going is actually, and I, I think you hit perfectly by breaking into two parts. One is giving you and folks like you a platform to get out to more people than just people who you can actually shake their hand because you've had lunch with them in Boston. But you know, hundreds of thousands of people to have you be part of their decision set Mm -hmm. because they've now heard you on a podcast or listened to your YouTube or whatever. And then this other world of maybe there are people who instead of clicking on Apple stock to buy through E-Trade want to click to buy into your syndication, which I know to some people that feels just as risky. I'm not sure it is. I I mean, I I don't think so. Yeah. I I think it's more, Look, investing in stocks and, and investing in the stock market uh, or any of those types of financial products, it's very commonplace because it's been around for a long time, right? right? And, and investing in real estate syndications 
for the most part, has really only been limited to a very small percentage of, of people, especially on the accredited side. You know, there's obviously there's very few population speaking. There's a very small percentage of accredited investors compared to everybody else. Um, and, and, you know, as people have become more educated about the syndication process, more people have understood like, Hey, I can provide this opportunity as an investment to, you know, not only accredited, but sophisticated or even non-sophisticated individuals. Now, granted, there's still SEC guidelines based on, you know, you have to be the one to make sure like, look, you can't have the, like, they may be unsophisticated uh, or, or unaccredited, but if this is the last, if this is the only $50,000 that they have and they can't like, if they lose that, then, you know, you're going to be on the hook for that. That's, that's because you're the financial professional. Um, so in that respect, I think that's where it might, that's where a lot of the probably um, conflict will, will arise when it comes to crowdfunding and things like that. And having people, um, you know, if they're investing large sums of money into real estate opportunities and that's all they have, that's, that's where the SEC will have problems. Well, they're not. Yeah, but that's not. I mean, that's not what any. I I wouldn't recommend that, right? All we right, agree. Right, I mean, all right. we would just say is, look, be smarter with your money and and actually be able to play it across a couple of different sectors, and you should be part of that decision, that that opportunity set for the right people. Agreed, agreed. And and, and you know, it, truthfully, right, it comes down to what market are you operating in? How much is your capital raised? Right. So if I do a um, a Reg D five hundred six B, right, and I can have up to thirty five unaccredited investors in that. Well, if I'm raising $2 million, you know, I have to get 35 people. Oh, let's say three and a half. We'll make it easy numbers. I have to get 35 people that have a hundred grand that are, that are not sophisticated. That's a challenge. Yeah. It just is. Um, so that's where it's like, there are certain limits that just, it just makes it very, very difficult. So that's where I think as it goes along, crowdfunding could be a much larger play and to be able to provide those kind of opportunities to people. Um, so, and, but again, as an operator and in, in capital raiser, those are the things that you have to keep in mind. At yeah. the end of the day, you have to watch out for an individual's. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like right now your focus is how do you create more one-on-one -on -one relationships by using tech like yes. this, like a podcast and other things to get out to people. Right, so in a, in a, in a traditional, oh, anytime you're raising capital, right, using um, you know, a, a registered filing, you know, you have to establish to the SEC if they if they ever come knocking, like you have yeah, to show the SEC that. Well, yeah, you have to have a, a minimum of a thirty day relationship with that person. So, like, if you know, you and I finally just met face to face, it's like our relationship is you know less less than two weeks old, and I can't have you put money in a deal yet. Like, you got to wait. So, and and because those are, and those are the things you got to play by. the I rules. just have to imagine that tech is going to push the envelope of allowing those rules to loosen some to say actually investing in your deal for $10,000. I'm not a, a non-accredited investor putting in 10 grand to your deal is actually just as risky as putting money into Apple stock. A, a thousand, per, <laughs> one thousand. It's actually to me, I mean, just because I mean, look, I understand, I understand the stock market, but I, I understand I'm a real estate guy. Um, I think the stock market is, is good. And I think you should have exposure to it, but I think real estate is, much better. It's much more stable. I mean, there's risks with everything. Um, it's just, well, so let me even say better or worse. For sure, it's different. Yes. And by the way, in, in, in investing, um, I mean, I, I follow Bridgewater and, and Ray Dalio. I'm a huge fan. Mm -hmm. Folks who listen to this have heard me quote him before. But one of his big things is, like, one of the best things you can ever do as an investor is have uncorrelated bets. Absolutely. Right? Yep. He would rather a, another uncorrelated bet 
at the same investment return than trying to increase a little bit more on one return because long-term he knows you can get such a better return because market, when that market crashes, it's not going to cross across the different uncorrelated bets. So Absolutely. I, I think that's, that's, the, that's what you're bringing to the world. That's, but, and that's, that's so powerful. It, it, truth. And, and, you know, we've focused, we started focusing a lot more on like self, so, uh, solo 401ks, QRPs and, and uh, self-directed IRAs. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people that I speak to, like, oh, you know, I, I'm not an investor. Like, well, if you have money in the stock market through a 401k or an IRA, you are an investor, like, period. Yeah. But yeah. a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't think that they are. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 you are. Yeah. So, I mean, and I've yeah, been. You, you're investing in America. Right, pretty <laughs> much. Know? And, and the you thing know? is, right, so um, most people, like, they don't know. So, like, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the stock market as long as you know what you're doing. If you're just setting it and forgetting it, and putting your financial future and hoping for Wall Street to to pay off, like I don't yeah. I don't like to hope with my future. Yeah. I like to know predictable outcomes, and that's the way I like to invest. That's why I love real estate. Um, and you know, I, I think for me, um, being able to educate people and show them, like, look, and, and this gets back to why we've been really educating a little bit more on the on the self directed IRAs and, and being able to self direct your four hundred one ks. Is showing people like, look, if you have a hundred thousand dollars in your in your in, uh, let's say you're forty years old, right, and you've got a hundred thousand dollars sitting in a four hundred one k or an IRA, um, to be able to take like, well, if you don't want the market volatility, and you know you don't, you just you're just setting it and forgetting it, and seems like I'm oh, I, or I put it in this stock because I have an iPhone and I just want to put it in Apple, and I, but I don't know the underlying underwriting to that actual stock or index or mutual fund, and forget about the fees. I won't even go on about the fees. Um, but to, to be able to, you know, put your risks and hopes and future in that, um, you can also, if you love real estate, because you know, real estate, you have to live in real estate, you're around real estate every day. And, and it's not a paper asset. It's a, it's a real asset. It's tangible. It's secured and insured, um, to be able to invest into a, an asset class like that with your retirement funds and to watch your retirement funds grow. I mean, the stock market, when someone tells you or an advisor tells you, well, you should have a mix of stocks and bonds and that's going to generate a six to 8% average for you year over year when you can put it into real estate and go anywhere from 10 to 20% on an annual basis. Yeah. It's, it's just life changing. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so I can put it into this asset and get double what I can here without the volatility. And right. it's got a predictable end to it. I'm in. So. Andrew, this is awesome, man. You got me fired up. Uh, I hope our listeners are fired fired up. How do uh, if folks want to reach out to you? Uh, what's the what's your means of communication? Yeah. Um, I, uh, Other than go to Southie and and have a beer in, yeah. uh, in a bar. <laughs> yeah, um, it's uh, best on uh, my website. It's uh, Kappa. It's Cap C A P as in profit uh, equity partners. Cap uh, equity partners. Cap equity partners dot com. Um, I'll, I'll even put my cell phone out there. I don't care. Um, Seven eight one. Five seven two, nine five seven seven. That's those are those are the, and you can go to our website. It's got a phone number on there as well. You can call that. It's a Google number. It'll, it'll ring my now, phone. Now all this talk about equity and IRAs, ladies. It looks like Andrew's married, so don't uh, <laughs> don't think about calling him up for a date. This is uh, this is people who want to invest or want to get to know Andrew better. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, nah, man, this is awesome. Really cool stuff. Um, I love what you're doing. I really do. I'm, I'm super passionate about this. I think um, I love how you're talking about the markets. Uh, I love how you talk about where the world can go for investors being able to invest. And, and I love just really challenging the mindset that 
people talk a lot about where we are in the turn and will the markets crash or what's going to happen. The reality is the market is not the entire world. Southie and Boston and Louisville and Baltimore are, and, and Tokyo yeah, and are, are Tampa. They're all, <laughs> right, they're, no, all they're, they're all individual markets, right? right? And that you really need to think about it as such because uh, they are individual and, and any change in any market could affect some, but not all. Right? And, a thousand percent. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously the residential versus rental market are, are two different things too. Right. So, so and we kind of encompass it all. So it's awesome, man. Thanks for joining us. Dude, thank you so much. I very much appreciate it. All right. Take care. Awesome. Cool. So that's our episode of Real Estate Hackers. Thanks for joining us in your real estate investing journey. We come out with fresh new episodes weekly. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you would, let your fellow investors know about us. Also, if you've ever hacked or found a unique solution to an issue in the real estate space, hit me up. We may even share your real estate hack on a future episode. Check out our site at realestatehackers.com on Instagram at Real Estate Hackers, or email me directly at chad at realestatehackers.com. Real Estate Hackers is an on-air brands production. Huge thanks and shout out to Eric and the team at On Air Brands. Be sure to check them out at onairbrands.com. This is Chad Gallagher, your host of Real Estate Hackers. Hope to see you at our next meetup or live event. And who knows, you may even be the next guest hacker on our show. See you soon.